Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. You made it to Friday, and so did the rest of us here at the Three Martini Lunch. So glad you are with us today. Want to let you know that we're sponsored again today by Acre Gold. Get acregold.com slash martini is where you need to go for more information and a chance to win that gold bar for the month of March. So don't delay. Get acregold.com slash martini. More on them in just a moment. Jim, I'm happy to report we have a normal complement of martinis today, at least in category. Good, bad, and crazy. Uh, I can't promise that the content will be normal, but let's start with the good. And the good came yesterday at the White House coronavirus briefing. Dr. Deborah Burks is uh, the coordinator for the coronavirus response, and I'm sure you've seen her at many of the briefings if you've had a chance to see those. What she had to say yesterday is hopefully quite reassuring to folks. Now, what she had to say is focused on where we are right now, and obviously uh, circumstances could change, but there's been a lot of uh, reports out there that uh, everything is completely swamped. Uh, Jim, you did a very good uh, article just the other day on uh, the diminishing capacity for hospitals in some areas, but Dr. Burks was saying just yesterday, first of all, that there are still quite a few ICU beds and plenty of ventilators, even in the hardest hit areas like New York. Finally, the situation about ventilators. We were reassured and meeting with our colleagues in New York that there are still ICU beds remaining, and there's still significant over a thousand or two thousand ventilators that have not been utilized yet. Please, for the reassurance of people around the world, to wake up this morning and look at people talking about creating DNR situations, do not resuscitate situations for patients. There is no situation in the United States right now that warrants that kind of discussion. You can be thinking about it in a hospital, certainly many hospitals talk about this on a daily basis, but to say that to the American people, to make the implication that when they need a hospital bed, it's not gonna be there, or when they need that ventilator, it's not gonna be there. We don't have an evidence of that right now. And in getting into a slightly more complicated topic of uh, the model, since that's been a topic of debate lately because uh, the person who put out the most widely accepted models of how disastrous this could be initially walked it back yesterday before going back to his original projections. But Dr. Burks is saying, uh, regardless of what the person who made the model is saying, the facts we're seeing on the ground in these different countries shows that things are not as dire as the models are showing. Either you have to have a large group of people who are asymptomatic, who've never presented for any test, in order to have the kind of numbers that were predicted. To get to 60 million people infected, or 6 million people infected, you have to have a large group of asymptomatics because in no country to date have we seen an attack rate over one in a thousand. So either we're only measuring the tip of the iceberg of the symptomatic cases and underneath it are a large group of people so we're working very hard to get that antibody test because that's a good way to figure out who are all these people under here and do they exist. Or we have the transmission completely wrong. So these are the things we're looking at because the predictions of the models don't match the reality on the ground in either China, South Korea, or Italy. Um, we are about five times the size of Italy. So. If we were Italy and you did all those divisions, Italy should have close to 400,000 deaths. 
they're not close to achieving that. So Jim, as I said, uh, these are the circumstances right now, but a lot of folks were painting darker pictures out there uh, than seems to be the reality, at least at the moment. So good on Dr. Burks for being able to explain it and for giving us some good news. Yeah, I'm kind of struck by uh, something I saw just a short while ago. Joe Lockhart, who used to be the press secretary for uh, Bill Clinton back in the Clinton administration. I I think I remember some uh, nascent online snarky commentators calling him bug-eyed Joe has been strangely resurgent in pundit world after not being you know heard from for a long time in the you know working in corporate client communications and stuff. And he said, I for one am no longer interested in hearing from Dr. Burks. By the way, he calls her Dr. Bricks. He can't even bother to spell her name correctly. Her vouching for Trump's vast scientific abilities from his business background was the breaking point. Stepford Doctor. So first of all, I'm so glad that everyone is arguing with the Trump administration by not emulating him. But yeah, it was Reagan Battalion, a couple other folks who pointed out, in addition to who, you know, the, the expertise that we're seeing from the podium every day. She served as a physician in the United States Army, rose to the rank of colonel before retiring from military service. And, you know, Burks was dominated by President Obama to be the U.S. Global AIDS Coordinator, confirmed by the Senate by a wide margin. You know, she is a very respected doctor. This is not some, you know quack who got dragged out because of loyalty to the president or something like that. I understand where everybody's coming from in terms of, you know, fear about, you know, Trump has had a very short fuse when it comes to people who contradict him in government. But so far, he's been very good to Burks and to, to Fauci. I think, you know, for whatever else is flaws, the president wants to get this right, and he's not going to dismiss them or hand wave them away. By and large, so far, I, th- I think he's, you know, he's not, when he says he wants to reopen the economy, He's not saying I'm going to reopen the economy come hell or high water because with the recent advent of so many plagues, Greg, it looks like hell or high water might be coming next month. You know, the president is trying to, you know, balance these very important competing interests here. And this kind of partisan sniping at the likes of Dr. Burks is not helpful. And just your point about the models, this is a new virus. Everybody's trying to calculate the infection rates, the contagion ability, the death rate, the the, uh, severity as best they can. And we all now know that we got bad information from China for the first anywhere three weeks to six weeks from this. And this is kind of foreshadowing another martini in our podcast today. And so, you know, different countries are going to have different, uh, different infection rates. I've seen a fascinating argument that the extraordinarily high rates you're seeing in Italy, that you're seeing in France, that you're seeing in Spain, um, and that you're not seeing in certain Northern European countries. Some people might say, ah, you know, that's climate related or something. Um, also between those, this, those Southern uh, European countries I mentioned and Iran all have the tradition of greeting people with kisses on the cheek. Well, if you're doing that, you're bringing your mouth closer to somebody else. And maybe that was a way that coronaviruses got spread from one person to another much quicker and much more widely in these countries than in others. Um, I've also heard the argument that actually, you know, something we usually think of as a nice thing, intergenerational families interacting often, you know, grandchildren seeing their grandparents, parents seeing their elderly parents. Um, that has occurred in a higher rate in these uh, countries like Italy and Spain. And that may be one of the things that spread the disease faster and more quicker. So everybody's trying to get their handles around this. And it's not surprising that some of the worst models would not turn out to be true. Um, I think it's pretty clear to say some of the best models have not turned out to be true. But when you know someone like Dr. Burke says, hey, you know what, we're starting to see some good signs, I for one find that pretty reassuring. 
I do too, Jim. And I want to get your thoughts on another thing here. And that's uh, the reaction to Trump's numbers going up. And I think there's a couple of different reasons for that. I think a lot of folks, whether they like Trump or not, obviously want the United States to get through this as quickly as possible with as few casualties as possible. So it's kind of, we're all on the same team, at least for the moment uh, type of thinking here. But I think also the fact that he's surrounding himself with people who are clearly competent and experts in the field are helping as well. But now that the president's numbers on his handling of this have uh, on the crisis itself are now north of 60%. You've got CNN and NBC saying, well, we're not sure we're going to cover these briefings wire to wire again. And uh, regardless of what you think of Trump, the information that these experts are putting out there, and to some extent, Trump and Pence as well, is vital information. And so the fact that these folks aren't willing to do this, whether it's because of the approval numbers or some other reason, is uh, derelict, I think, on their part. Yeah. First of all, no one should be that shocked by Trump's numbers if for no other reason than the traditional rally around the flag effect. Um, every time the country is facing some sort of crisis, usually the initial um, response from the public is to be supportive of the leadership, and the, particularly the president, particularly if the president is seen to be doing something, right? Now, that may change over the future. People may come to the conclusion that Trump is making the wrong decisions, or he's overreacting in one way or underreacting in another or something like that. One, that's pretty normal. And two, like, you know, the point that you know, Kyle Smith tried to emphasize in a, in a piece just earlier this week, we all need the president to succeed on this, right? You love him, you hate him, you can't stand him, maybe you think he's the worst president, maybe you think he's the world, worst leader the world's ever had. We need him to make the right decisions right now, right? Whatever gambles he makes in, in calculating the risks and figuring out how much, you know, the, which decision, which course is the right one, we need it to be the right one, right? You can't really, rooting against him and hoping that he falls flat on his face right now is hoping for things to get worse in the country. So I, I, I can't get my head around that. And then the second thing is kind of jumping out about this is that the idea of, well, we're not going to cover the, the president's statements in these White House briefings anymore. I think that policy is going to end up being unsustainable because as we've seen in some of these briefings, Trump will come to the podium. He'll announce whatever news they have. He might say, I'm the greatest. He might say, my critics are terrible. You know, he, he'll put on a typically Trumpian performance, but then he turns things over to Dr. Burks or he turns it over to Dr. Fauci. And like, if you're the networks, do you not cut into that? Because they might be saying something important. But then, of course, Trump will come back to the podium. And then maybe Pence will say something. You know, there's no guarantee of who's speaking what. So they're going to constantly going to say, well, we're going to cut in. Uh, Trump is speaking again. We're going to cut out. You know, I, I don't think this is going to work. My guess is we will have some sort of you know, furious rant about uh, Congressman Massey today. Well, if you're CNN, do you want to cover that or do you not want to cover that? You know, this is the, but basically, this is a complaint about Trump manifesting itself in a programming decision. They'll love the Massey content because it's Republican infighting. So they're all there for that. But uh, let's talk about our good friends now at Acre Gold. Glad to have them sponsoring this episode. And as we've said uh, over the last couple of weeks now, given the uncertainty in the markets lately, we definitely want to make you aware of something very timely from Acre. Acre is the new subscription platform for gold. Acre lets you make small monthly payments and then sends gold straight to your doorstep every few months. Don't break the bank. Start buying gold for just $50 a month and watch your gold grow. Acre will keep you updated on your gold stash as you make progress. Once your gold stash reaches the price of a 2.5 gram Acre Gold bar, they will discreetly ship you your gold. Easy, safe, and secure. For more information, go to getacregold.com martini or by clicking the link in our show notes and start your Acre Gold subscription today. Make sure you go to our URL because Acre is giving away a gold bar for the month of March. Hey, and March is almost over. So if you want a chance to win, go ahead and enter soon. To win, listeners can tweet why they should win and mention at get underscore Acre for a chance to win that free gold. Getacregold.com martini. 
All right, Jim, uh, we actually teed up the second and third martinis in that first one, but let's get to the bad one. And that deals with the House consideration today of the coronavirus relief package, $2.2 trillion. And the original hope was that this could get done by a voice vote without having to drag a a majority of sitting House members back to Washington to conduct this debate and this vote. But uh, they're back in Washington today, at least uh, maybe not the whole caucus, but uh, enough of them to make it work. And that's because Kentucky Congressman Thomas Massey, a Republican who's probably more of a libertarian, has said that he is absolutely disgusted I think in part with the process on on this bill, but also with all of the seemingly irrelevant add-ons. And you and I would certainly agree with that, Jim. We've chronicled them from the Kennedy Center to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting to the IRS and on and on and on, lots of billions of dollars in that category. But by not agreeing to unanimous consent here, this debate has to take place. Uh, Folks are worried about older members of Congress having to get on planes and come back to town and possibly exposing themselves to the coronavirus and so forth. And so On the one hand, Jim, we rail against wasteful spending all the time, and this is certainly one of the biggest bills we've ever seen, if not the biggest. And uh, at the same time, though, time is of the essence on the absolutely critical components here. And so perhaps there was a better way for Massey to protest. What do you think? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, in today's morning, Joel, I lay out all the different reasons why all of my usual arguments about um, wanting to avoid waste and wanting to spend money wisely and the careful consideration of how the government should be spending money, we, all of that goes out the window when vast swaths of the economy have had the, the brakes slammed onto them. This is an extraordinary circumstance and all of the usual concerns, I think, have to you know, be, be put aside for a crisis of this magnitude. Um, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Neil Kashkari uh, of up Minnesota, Federal Reserve Bank up in Minnesota, said that this is basically the equivalent of the effect of Hurricane Katrina on like the Louisiana uh, economy is basically happening all over the country right now. That's a, that's a way of thinking of it. So I can't say, well, it's time to be careful and take our time with this. The other thing is, and for, you know, for people, I think most people kind of have the general gist of this, but covered Congress for years over congressional quarterly. So you're going to hear about this, whether you like it or not. Um, <laughs> Congress can do voice votes on just about anything. It's going to by unanimous, but it has to be done by unanimous consent. And so you get this on things like renaming post offices. You know, nobody has a particular care, you know, cares if uh, we rename the post office from one guy to another guy, you know, you know, so they hit Mr. Speaker, I move for a voice vote. All, all, all the eyes say, aye, aye. And all the nays say, nay, usually there's no nays. And the chair says, the eyes have it. The motion is, uh, motion is passed. The problem is that to do that, everybody has to agree. And if one person objects, well, then you got to have a recorded vote on this. And when your job is to record the House floor votes for Congressional Quarterly, Greg, I know about you, I wanted as many voice votes as possible because it meant less work for me. But perhaps more significantly, this is, it's not, you know, sometimes someone would want a recorded vote on the renaming of their post office or something like that. On the one hand, one of the biggest and most important spending bills of all time passing by voice vote would be seen as pretty extraordinary. On the other hand, we know it's going to pass, and we know that these are not ordinary times in that uh, at last check, we have obviously a good chunk of our House of Representatives is uh, aged, shall we say, are in the demographic in which they would be a particular risk um, of the uh, coronavirus. There are 36 members of Congress who are currently in self-quarantine because they have interacted with someone with coronavirus. You know, there is no way to pass a bill in the House of Representatives on a non-voice vote with a recorded vote, without getting lots and lots of elderly people all together in the same room. So now the question is, you know, is it worth it, right? Massey can put out a statement saying, this is the worst bill in the history of the world. I think it's terrible. I voted nay, and I disagree. 
and everyone else still could have passed it by voice vote. It would be about the same thing. But no, he wants the recorded vote. Everybody's got to go through this. Uh, you know, you can hear me knocking on wood that nobody catches anything, but you really got to think through what, you know, was this worth it? If there is, you know, a further outbreak up on Capitol Hill, uh, we've already had the situation with Senator Rand Paul, uh, you know, people are going to ask themselves, was this worth it? Did Massey, you know, think through what the consequences of this? The other quite a quite side effect of all this is that like Congress needs a secure and verifiable method of voting remotely now, not, not tomorrow, not next month, not, uh, you know, because first of all, as we discussed earlier, they're going to have to pass other pieces of legislation dealing with the coronavirus and the, the ensuing recession that is driven by this. Nice. This problem isn't going away. And I don't understand why, like, you know, apparently they said, well, we couldn't do it for this bill. Okay, <laughs> get it ready for next week. I don't care if everybody has to phone it in. I don't care if everybody has to stand in their office and they all do it by webcam. Figure something out, guys. At some point, it's going to reach, it may reach the point where it's just not safe to have all the members of Congress in one uh, place. Or I guess even conceivably, maybe they won't have a quorum uh, if everybody's stuck either self-quarantining self or in hospital beds. Yeah, the possible silver lining here is that it uh, expedites the uh, necessity of that. Uh, just to uh, highlight some of the reactions here, you've got Dean Phillips, a Democrat from Minnesota. Uh, I'll leave out the uh, expletives here, but uh, he says... It would have been nice for Massey to actually say definitively sooner that he wanted to uh, voice his opposition to this and, and go to a recorded vote. Peter King called it disgraceful and irresponsible. Kevin McCarthy, the GOP leader, had been pleading with folks to just let the voice vote happen. President Trump uh, chiming in on Twitter today. Looks like a third-rate grandstander named Representative Thomas Massey, a congressman from, unfortunately, a truly great state, Kentucky, wants to vote against the new Save Our Workers bill in Congress. He just wants the publicity. He can't stop it. Only delay, which is both dangerous and costly. Workers and small businesses need money now in order to survive. Virus wasn't their fault. It is hell dealing with the Dems. Had to give up some stupid things in order to get the big picture done. 90% great. Win back house, but throw Massey out of Republican Party, unquote. So, uh, Jim, uh, Trump making sure he's nowhere near this procedural move here. You know, Greg, you know, listeners know how often I disagree with the president's angry tirades on Twitter. It's a really weird feeling to watch the president do this and go, yep, yep, he's right. <laughs> but what's even weirder, even more bizarre, I'm not making any of this up, dear listeners, is that a short time after the president tweeted that, John Kerry jumped onto Twitter. And I will give you my John Kerry impression, but I have to clean up some of the language because John Kerry used a whole bunch of language that is not appropriate for this podcast. Breaking news. Congressman Massey has tested positive for being an a-hole. He must be quarantined to prevent the spread of his massive stupidity. He's given new meaning to the term, the profane term that those of us outside the state of Massachusetts use to call people from Massachusetts. Finally, something the president and I can agree on. I'm not making that up. Kerry actually, and then a short time later, the president of the United States tweeted, never knew John Kerry had such a good sense of humor. Very impressed. Greg, it's a beautiful kumbaya moment. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> the partisan divide is gone. America is united. No less a division than Donald Trump and John Kerry have come to agree on this. Um, I, I, I'm baffled, but, but again, this, it's an indicator of everybody kind of recognizes how much something that could be you know, uh, defended in abstract you know, uh, arguments of principle really has turned into a very unwise decision based on the you know, known facts on the ground. Yeah, generally speaking, I kind of like uh, Massey being there and uh, sticking up for uh, 
constitutional principles and, uh, and, and fiscal responsibility. Uh, but like you said, I think a strongly worded statement, uh, making it clear he didn't like what was in there, might have been smarter here, particularly since there's really nothing he can do to derail the bill. And obviously there's lots in there that we don't want to be derailed. Uh, let's move on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And uh, you had uh, a few Twitter thoughts about this yesterday because in the official numbers, there are now more Americans who have tested positive for coronavirus than any other nation in the world. That's not divided by population or anything like that. It's just raw cases testing positive. And uh, the media is almost celebrating this in some macabre way. And uh, you even had uh, one reporter, I won't even give her the dignity of saying her name, over at the Huffington Post, asking on Twitter, who's the S-hole country now? And uh, the responses to that were quite choice as well, I might point out. But uh, Jim, it's just fascinating that, uh, according to a lot of reports, China has just stopped testing so they can back up their claim that they've dealt with the virus. And so, miraculously, their numbers of positive cases haven't gone up. Meanwhile, you've got Hong Kong and Singapore reinstating restrictions because of the uh, a second wave, it seems, of the virus. And Business Insider, among others, reporting that China has ordered uh, hundreds of theaters to close again. They had ordered them all to close the first time, then they reopened them. Now they're closing them again, which suggests that China is hiding perhaps the resurgence of this virus, which is bad in two ways and crazy. First of all, crazy that people are believing China bad. Secondly, that China's still lying. And if there's a second wave, we really have a, a problem on our hands. Yeah. Well, first thought is um, when I first saw this and saw the reaction to this, and I think you're right. I think there were some people who saw this as yet another chance to take a shot at, at President Trump. And, you know, folks, the, the election's November. Okay. We still got a lot of road ahead before we get to that. And we still have a lot of road ahead in terms of dealing with this particular coronavirus crisis. And we still have a lot of road ahead before we actually, you know, before it turns into those first ballots start arriving that are, you know, in, in vote by mail states. We can deal with all of our arguments about President Trump then, right? In the meantime, we got to get through this particular crisis. But I went and I checked on a site which had been up, up until recently very reliable, worldometers.info. Um, gathering all the information that they were getting from all different countries about this. And if you look at the chart for China, the daily new cases, uh, you know, declined pretty steadily through February, which is all right. That's on that's in par with what we'd expect um, if a if this was spreading around beginning in early December. Uh, but basically, throughout March, they have nothing. Now, somebody pointed out to me that it looks like they simply stopped updating the chart, and that China has reported a certain number of cases. Having said that, a, you know, a country of a billion people, and they said like the other day they had 47, which seems low. It seems really low. I believe about eight days ago, they said they had zero new cases. And again, you know, even with the draconian steps they've taken, uh, social distancing and locking people up and all that stuff, that still seemed really low. And, uh, you know, either, either they did an amazing job um, of, of, you know, flattening the curve to the point where it's literally a, you know, straight line across. And they were having, you know, almost an imperceivable increase in cases day by day. Or they're not being honest. Now, as I laid out at the beginning of the week, China lied about this for the first six weeks. So there's really no reason to say, oh, I believe them. Thankfully, Greg, no one really said, oh, Jim, this is too important. China wouldn't lie about this. <laughs> uh, but there were people who said, look, Jim, there's no way they'd be able to cover up another uh, outbreak. Uh, the, eventually, people would notice that the ERs were filled up again, and people were in the ICU units again, and eventually word would slip out. I, I could see that argument somewhat, but again, this is a totalitarian state that has gotten really, that had a dress rehearsal of this at the end of last year. So they may have gotten a lot better at figuring out how to hide cases and how to keep them away from the uh, ones. And of course, they also are kicking out most Western journalists. So 
our ability to accurately assess what's going on in China seems uh, very spotty right now at best. So, but the other thing is, you know, as of a week ago or a little more than that, they're saying, hey, you know what? Life's back to normal. Movie theaters can open again. We don't need to have the same social distancing rules, et cetera, et cetera. As of this morning, all like 600 of them that had reopened were told to shut down again. I don't know exactly what that means. I think it's safe to say that they believe that there's at least some threat of this uh, spreading again. And I kind of wonder if the argument is that, no, it didn't, you know, drop so suddenly at the beginning of March as they were claiming that maybe it stayed, you know, went down at a slower pace, but it, uh, it was still going down. Or I think most ominously, maybe it didn't go down. I mean, we'll, we'll see. We, you know, again, this, we're talking about a situation where it's very hard to tell. But for a company that says they had this thing licked, although maybe that's not a good metaphor, for a company, <laughs> country that says they had this thing beaten, they're not acting like a country that had this beaten. And so, you know, I mean, just for the sake of the Chinese people, you hope that's not true. But I also think for our calculation of how we're handling the virus, are we doing the right things? Are we seeing the progress we should? We simply can't put too much faith into any data coming out of China right now because it's in all likelihood they're not telling us the whole story and they may not be telling us anything close to the whole story. Jim, I feel better than I did yesterday when we were talking about millions of jobs lost and terrorist plots. So I feel like we're heading into the weekend about as optimistic as we can here, thanks to Dr. Burks and, and uh, some, some silver linings that we weren't seeing earlier in the week. It's Friday. So I don't know about you, Greg, I can drink a lot more. <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling much better because of that. You don't even need a designated driver anymore. You just got to go to your There kitchen. you go. Yeah. So there you go. Jim, have a great weekend. We'll see you Monday. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks also to our great sponsor, Acre Gold. Get acregold.com slash martini. Also, please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a kind review. And don't forget, you can get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Have a great weekend, and we'll be back with you Monday on the Three Martini Lunch.